Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Desolation. When I think about what happened to me, I often try to recall how I felt on the day it all started. Was there some kind of warning, a Cassandra, a canary in the coal mine, as they say? The answer is no. It was a normal day. Cold as hell, but the skies were blue, the air was still. It was basically picturesque. And to me, that's perhaps the most terrifying part about it. The sky seemed almost inviting, as if something, or someone, was beckoning me, taunting me into the air. Sometimes I stay up at night, staring at the darkened ceiling of my cabin and wondering if that wasn't the case. But all I can say with any real certainty is that I felt at ease. I drove my truck out to the narrow airstrip where I kept my single prop Cessna, It was a beautiful plane, nothing glamorous or sleek about it, but it was mine, and it served me well. At least, until that final flight. After calling in my planned route, I set about my pre-flight checklist. Fuel was perfect, engine systems were in check, de-icing was done, tire pressure was ideal, rudder action was smooth, and I had a crystal clear signal on the radio. It seemed like a perfect day to be in the sky. When I took off from Dubois, I headed north towards the Shoshone National Forest. It was one of my favorite places to fly. Not many people know this, but that patch of Wyoming is actually the most remote area in the lower 48. You can fly for miles without seeing so much as a single man-made structure. And I liked it that way, because the landscape was so utterly beautiful that construction would have only impeded on it. As I flew, embracing the solitude of the snow-covered mountains, the quiet stillness of the air, I let my thoughts drift, 
let myself disappear into the beauty of the moment. And then, my nightmare began. From out of nowhere, a massive black bird appeared directly in my flight path. I remember thinking it odd because I rarely saw crows or blackbirds flying at that altitude. And what was more bizarre, the bird appeared to be coming straight at me, unperturbed by my presence, as if the animal had some kind of death wish. I tried to bank a turn to the left, but it did me no good. The bird was obliterated by my prop, splattering my windshield with blood and destroying my intake. I lost power to my compressor blades almost immediately, and the prop stopped spinning shortly thereafter. I immediately began making mayday calls, but all my efforts at communication were lost to random bursts of static that began coming through the radio. In all my years of flying, I had never experienced a communication failure of that type, and it just so happened to occur at the moment when I most desperately relied on my radio. If there was one thing working in my favor, it was the fact that I could see a small clearing in the forest below. The trees and mountains seemed to break for a span just long enough for me to land my plane. With white knuckles gripping the controls and a sheen of sweat breaking out on my pale forehead, I glided down towards the ground as subtly as possible. A massive sigh of relief came over me when my plane didn't obliterate on impact. But that's not to say the touchdown was smooth. The landing gear bounced off small boulders and roots, jerking me around violently inside the cabin. Grabbing the brakes for all they were worth, I managed to slow the plane down just short of coasting into a line of towering pine trees. Once I regained my composure and checked my body for injuries, I set about trying to call for help. But my radio was faltering even worse than it had in the air. I pulled out my cell phone, but it showed only an empty black screen. Cursing, I slung it across the cabin, listening to it ricochet off the windshield. It was as though I had entered a zone in which electronic communication was impossible. The thought made me shiver. Still, I was committed to surviving my predicament by whatever means necessary. And I knew that if I didn't find shelter by nightfall, I wouldn't last to see the morning. It had only been 28 degrees when I'd taken off, and once the sun fell, temperatures would plummet even further. Grabbing my jacket and a backpack full of first aid supplies, I stepped from the cabin into the unforgiving mountain landscape. Luckily, it had been a relatively dry winter that year, and being that it was still early in the season, there was only about a foot of snow on the ground. Had there been five or six feet of snow, the mere act of moving through the forest would have been nearly impossible. I wasn't a religious man, but I remember that as I stepped into the darkened canopy of trees, I muttered a series of prayers to myself, promising God that if he could just get me home, I would never take anything for granted again. In my backpack, I had a compass and a map. I knew my general location and could see that a dozen miles to the northwest there was a ranger station. I wasn't sure if it was occupied in the winter months, but it was my best chance of survival. At the ranger station, there would probably be a working radio, a heater, and some food. So, I set off through the snow-covered woods. My boots were insulated and waterproof, but still, my toes were nearly freezing after an hour of walking. I stopped and sat down on a fallen log to try and regain the sensation in my feet. 
On the ground to my left, I noticed a bulbous shape under the snow. It swelled in an almost perfect circle. Tentatively, I reached a gloved hand out and swept the snow off its surface. As I lifted it from the ground, I first thought that it was a pale, circular stone. Then I saw the eye cavities. It was a skull, I realized, but what kind I couldn't tell. It was much larger than a human's, nearly the size of a beach ball. I wondered if it was perhaps a bison, but that didn't make sense either. Bison were grazers. They stayed in the plains, mostly. It was rare for them to venture up into this mountainous terrain. But if it wasn't a bison, then what was it? It was massive and oddly shaped. But even more disturbing was the presence of horns on the skull. No, not horns exactly. They were more like tusks. They were long and sharp, protruding from the sides of the jaw. Trembling, I dropped the skull, watching it fall to the snowy earth. I tried to forget about the skull as I walked, tried not to imagine the monstrous animal it must have belonged to, but the visions plagued my imagination. I couldn't shake the idea that I wasn't alone in those woods, that they concealed something horrific, something that could devour me with impunity. After another few hours of walking, I began to get desperate. Time was running out, I knew, and the cold was already taking a toll on me. I could feel myself losing focus. Thoughts were slipping out of my grasp as my mind struggled to stay locked on the path ahead. I was on the verge of collapsing when I saw it. There was a series of wooden huts up ahead, hidden amongst the trees. I thought I was delusional at first, that I was hallucinating. But then there was movement. A man clad in what looked like caribou skins came walking out of one of the huts carrying a bundle of sticks. I tried to call out to him, but my voice failed me. My throat was dry and cold, the words refusing to come. After a few more tries, I was finally able to vocalize my desperation. Hey! I shouted, falling to one knee. He turned to face me, and shock fell over his face. He dropped the bundle of timber and jogged over to me, shouting over his shoulder for assistance as he did. The man, and a woman who had come to join him, helped me into one of the huts. They sat me down by a fire and gave me a thick wool blanket. I thanked them profusely, still shivering from the cold. After handing me a cup of hot tea and giving me a minute to gather myself, they asked, with the detectable air of suspicion, how I had come to find their remote little enclave. I told them about my plane, about my bad luck trying to call for help and my decision to walk in the direction of the ranger station. For a moment, I considered telling them about the strange skull I had found, but at the last second, something stopped me. You're damn lucky you found us, the man said. There's still a good eight miles between us and the ranger station, and that terrain is pretty treacherous, to say the least. I nodded solemnly in agreeance and thanked him again for taking me in. You don't happen to have a telephone, do you? Or a radio? The man frowned and shook his head. No, he replied. As you can imagine, living all the way out here, we're kind of Luddites. The woman stayed silent, watching the man with reverence as he spoke. I found myself wondering why they had moved all the way out there. 
I was pretty sure it wasn't even legal to build shelters in the Shoshone National Forest. And on top of that, it was a brutal stretch of country, as unyielding in its terrain as it was in its climate. But something told me not to ask about any of that. Something told me that I didn't want to know. I only cared about the fact that I was safe and warm. I could worry about getting home later. There's a storm coming, the man said abruptly. But once it clears, I can take you on horseback to the ranger station. I'm sure you'll be able to get a hold of somebody there. I nodded. As I did, the woman leaned over and whispered something in the man's ear. I felt suddenly uneasy. Ah, the man said emphatically. My beautiful wife has let me know that I seem to have lost my manners. My name is Lester. My wife here is Trinity. He reached a hand out to shake mine. I'm David, I said, shaking his hand. His wife made no movement to greet me, only bowing her head when I looked at her. When they left me in the hut and returned to their own cabin across the way, I felt relieved. I was grateful for their aid, but something about them made me uncomfortable. I watched snow begin to fall through the small window in the side of the hut, and I found myself wondering how Lester had known the storm was coming. If they didn't have phones or technology, how could they have known the forecast? I shook the question out of my head and placed another log on the fire. As I lay back on the small cot they had laid out for me, I tried to listen for Lester and Trinity's voices in their cabin, tried to get a better read on who they were and what they were doing all the way out there in the mountains. But my surroundings were silent. All I could hear was the episodic cracks of the fire. And before my mind could wander into that frightening reality of the day's events, I fell into a deep and dreamless sleep. When I awoke, the encampment held the same eerie silence as it had when I'd fallen asleep. I went outside, hoping only a few inches of snow had fallen in the night so we could see about making our way to the ranger station. Luckily, the fresh snow was sparse. I looked around for Lester to see if he was ready to head out, but he was nowhere to be seen. Only his wife, Trinity, was present. She was tending to the horses, tied up outside their cabin. I watched her from the corner of my eye, listening to her soft voice cooing the animals. Something about her made me uneasy, but it was no time to be meek. Hey there, I said, approaching her. She turned to face me, seemingly startled at the sound of my voice. But then she smiled and her eyes lit up with recognition. You must be starving, she said. Did you sleep well? Yes and yes, I replied, trying to chuckle but failing to retain a capacity for humor. She disappeared into her cabin and returned a minute later with a few slices of bread and half a boiled potato. When I finished eating, I asked her where Lester was. He's out setting traps. They don't like us to hunt game in the woods, but they allow us to cull a few rabbits each month. I was about to ask her who they were, but she went on before I could speak. Would you like to meet my son? she asked. I looked at her, confused. I didn't even know they had a child. After a few seconds, I nodded, not wanting to be rude. She led me into a shack adjacent to their cabin, and I was immediately met with a putrid smell. I lifted my shirt over my nose, recoiling. When Trinity reached the dim corner of the shack, she lifted a blanket from a narrow straw bed. There, below us, 
lay the blackening body of a child-sized corpse. Its lips were pulled tight over its teeth, revealing a garish grin, and the stomach bulged over rotting flesh. It had all happened so fast, I didn't know what to say or how to react. I just stood there, paralyzed, looking down at the stiff mass of gangrenous skin. After a moment, Trinity stooped, lowering her face to within a few inches of the corpses. Now be polite, James. This man traveled a long way just to come meet with us. I felt like I was about to vomit. The sickening dregs of acid were already clawing their way up my throat. She turned to me and giggled in a frighteningly innocent tone. Excuse him, she said. He's always shy around strangers. In that instant, my paralysis broke. I ran out of the shed and fell to my knees in the snow. The bread and potatoes, still undigested, came gushing out of my mouth and splashed against the pure white snow. In the distance, I heard something that sounded like footsteps. Trinity, what did you do? A voice called out. I lifted my head to see Lester approach and escort Trinity into their cabin. When he emerged from the door, he offered his hand and helped me get to my feet. He stood for a few seconds in silence, assessing the shock and awe in my pallid features. I guess I should explain, he said finally. Our son, James, had a respiratory condition. His chances were slim from the start. Doctors said it would be a miracle for him to live past ten. We thought moving out here would help. With the fresh air and all, you know. But I guess it wasn't enough. His eyes narrowed as he spoke, and his face took on a pained expression. A month ago, he went to bed and never woke up. Being as it's winter, the ground's frozen, so we can't bury him until spring. This whole thing's been hard on her, he continued, looking back towards the cabin that held his delusional wife. She thinks she can still save him. Thinks he's still gonna wake up one day. It's... I understand, I said, stopping him. I'm very sorry. Having learned about this tragedy, I felt in no position to ask about going to the ranger station. Especially since it would probably mean leaving his unstable wife alone for an extended period of time. But he must have seen the question burning in my gaze, because after a brief pause, he spoke up. I'll get the stuff ready tonight, he said. We'll go out on horseback tomorrow afternoon. I nodded and thanked him. We each retreated back to our quarters, and I lay by the fire on my cot, thinking about all the simple pleasures I would indulge in when I got back home. I thought about how good a cup of hot coffee would taste, how nice it would be to go share a beer with my friends, how much I would relish in the feeling of waking up in my own bed. But then my contemplations were interrupted. I could hear voices in the cabin next door. Most of what they were saying was unintelligible, but a few random strings of words stuck out. The first came from Trinity. It worked this far. It got him here. So why can't we just go through with it? Just get it over with, she asked. Lester replied, saying something like, How are we to know it will work? They're very particular about who they accept. And then the voice is quieted before cutting off completely. As I lay there in an uncomfortable silence, I wondered what that was all supposed to mean. 
The words sent a prickle down my spine when I recalled them in my head. And again, I was reminded of Trinity's mention of a they earlier in the day. Who were they? I tried not to think about it, turned my attention to the window and focused only on tomorrow's journey home. Gazing out at the darkened forest, I faded in and out of sleep. When I came to, it was full dark. I could see the glint of stars on the horizon. No, I thought, blinking as my eyes adjusted. Those aren't stars, they're too low on the horizon. They were scattered amongst the trees. It was only when I noticed that they were all grouped into pairs that I finally realized what I was looking at was a bunch of glowing eyes. They seemed to be staring back at me, unblinking, from where they stood amongst the darkened trees. A stiffness rose from the pit of my stomach and I lowered myself against the surface of the cot, keeping my body perfectly still and scarcely breathing. They were only woodland animals, I told myself. Raccoons and deer and the like. That was all. But when I closed my eyes, all I could see was the garish skull I had found in the snow the day before. I imagined a litany of monstrous creatures gazing at me as I slept, waiting for their time to strike. I pulled the small hatchet out of my backpack and held it to my chest, squeezing my eyes shut and praying for morning to come. When first light crept in through the window, I sprang to my feet. What little sleep I had gotten was restless and plagued by terrible dreams. A cold sweat clung to my skin, and I felt as though I had never been in more need of a shower. It was still well before noon, and I didn't anticipate we would be leaving for the ranger station for a good few hours, so I decided to walk out a few paces into the woods. I hoped that I would see the clearly recognizable tracks of a raccoon or a deer. I hoped that it would put me at ease about the peculiar eyes I'd seen glowing in the darkness the night before. But no such ease came. A few paces from the encampment, I didn't find the prints of a common woodland creature, but a few sets of massive prints laid by a bizarre cloven hoof. They were the shape of a goat's prints, but easily five times larger. They were wide and deep, set apart by long, loping strides. They seemed to emerge from the depth of the woods, stand a distance from the cabins, and then they'd return in the direction they'd come. It seemed like odd behavior for an animal. With newfound urgency, I headed back to the camp. Again, Lester was nowhere to be seen. Only this time he'd taken the horses with him. I could hear Trinity putzing around, but I had no interest in engaging with her. I decided instead to make myself scarce and sit in my cot until Lester returned. I warmed my hands by the fire, counting down the minutes until he returned and we could leave. But as one hour faded into the next, there was no sign of him. When the afternoon arrived, a heavy snowfall came with it. I looked out the window, watching the visibility fade in the evening light. It felt like I was living in a subtle nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. When nightfall came in earnest, Lester finally returned to the camp. I went outside, greeting him with a discontented stare. I'm sorry, he said. One of the horses got stuck in a ravine when we were out collecting traps today. It took me a few hours to get her out, and then, well... 
The snow started falling again. I looked at him skeptically, but didn't speak. Why had he needed to bring both horses with him, I wondered. First thing tomorrow morning, I'll take you straight to the ranger station, he assured me. I agreed, trying hard to bury my discontentedness. It seemed like he was at the very least failing to understand the desperation of my situation, and at the most possibly trying to keep me there for some reason. I didn't like either idea. So, without another word, I retreated to my quarters. I would sit through one more night, and when morning came, I would take a horse and leave, regardless of what he did or said. I gripped the hatchet to my chest and thought, wondering what the morning's events would come to. Turning over on my side, I looked out the window, watching snow fall through the darkness and flurries. A kind of hopelessness had come over me. I felt empty as I looked out at the world, as if there were an invisible barrier between me and it. Would I ever make it back home, I wondered. Between rifts of snow, I thought I could see movement in the darkness, indiscernible shapes that twisted and rose, their figures garish and ominous. Eyes. I thought I could see the eyes out there, too. Were they coming closer now? Was that the outline of something? Moving amongst the trees in dim flurries, its shape heinous and sinewy, its size enormous. I squinted and felt as though I could just make out the head atop a gargantuan figure. It was something like a bipedal mastodon, a giant glaring head with sharp curving tusks, and a too narrow torso with the legs of a massive goat. Stop, I told myself, squeezing my eyes shut. Those are just shapes in the darkness, just trees and snowdrifts. But my empty affirmations didn't keep my palms from sweating as they gripped the hatchet. When morning arrived, I stepped out into the cold and the snow, all my belongings in my backpack slung over my shoulders. I stood by the horses, making my intention known. I wasn't going to spend another hour in that cursed forest. As I contemplated mounting one of the horses, Lester stepped out of his cabin. He flashed me a brief but vacant smile. Ready to go, I see, he said, but I didn't answer. The assertion in my gaze was enough of a statement. You sure you don't want to wait until it warms up a bit? Let the sun get a little higher in the sky so we can see the trail better? I moved to throw a blanket over the back of one of the horses, planning to use it as a makeshift saddle. Okay, he said, holding his hands up to oblige me. He disappeared into his cabin and returned with a backpack of his own. With slow, deliberate steps, he moved towards the horses and untied them from the clapboard stable. Throwing his weight over the bare back of one of them, he looked back at me. Ready? he asked in an approximation of kindness. I sighed and climbed onto the other horse. He pointed in the direction of the ranger station and we set off. I led, clinging to the narrow trail through the woods, and he followed close behind me. Neither of us spoke as we rode, but there was a palpable yet unacknowledged tension between us. We were just out of sight from the camp when I began to notice those same horrific tracks lining the freshly fallen snow. I was careful to keep my head still. Something told me that it was a bad idea to let him know that I'd seen the prints. Something told me that they belonged to a creature that he was aware of, 
maybe even subservient to, and that he wanted to keep its presence hidden from me. But my effort at subtlety was apparently not enough. Soon after we'd passed the tracks, I heard the hoofs of his horse fall silent. He had stopped moving. I went on, feigning ignorance, but then his voice called out. When we moved out here, he began, I wanted more than just a quiet life away from society. I wanted to reclaim the veneration that my ancestors once held for the gods that live in these woods. I froze at the words, a frightening chill descending my spine. The old gods might seem like monsters to some men, but that's only because they fail to see their true beauty, fail to understand the miraculous things they can do for us. If you live in reverence for them, they can show you things you never thought possible. I tried to force a swallow, tried to maintain my cool as I figured out my next move. Of course, all that comes with a price, he continued. Secrecy and reverence isn't always enough. Sometimes the old gods want more than that. My skin prickled in anticipation of what I knew was about to come next. There was a brief pause during which I could only hear the rasp of my terrified breath. And then he said, You didn't really think I was just going to let you leave, did you? A branch snapped somewhere behind me, and I thrust my heels into the gut of my horse and sent it galloping down the trail. I could hear Lester's horse pursuing me, but there was something else. It laid thunderous footfalls into the ground, smashing through the flora as it chased me. Through all of it, with my heart beating wildly, I dared not look back. My horse ran, sensing my desperation as I repeatedly urged it on. Through snowdrifts and overfallen logs, we thudded across the forest floor, until the sounds of whatever was behind us grew more and more distant. As we approached a narrow crevasse, my horse slowed to a halt. It could apparently see no path forward, and I wasted no time ditching it and continuing on foot. In the distance, the terrible strides of Lester's lunatic god continued to make progress through the forest. I knew it would catch me eventually so I fell to my knees and burrowed into the belly of a hollowed tree. Straining to quell my rapid breathing, I pulled off my backpack. I knew I would have to act fast. Whatever that thing was, it would have no problem finding me, given the prints I had just laid in the fresh snow. From out of my backpack, I pulled a bottle of rubbing alcohol and tore the cuff off my shirt sleeve. The creature's terrifying approach continued sounding at times almost like the low rumble of a train. I soaked the fabric in alcohol before wedging it into the bottle's opening. From my pocket, I pulled a handful of matches that I'd taken from the fireplace in Lester's shed. My hands shook as I handled them, and I prayed that they were dry enough to strike. Looking out through the opening at the end of the hollowed log, I kept my eyes fixed on the snowy landscape. The steps continued to approach, jolting the frozen ground as I pressed my body flat against it. Finally, when I was so full of rigid anticipation I felt ready to burst at the seams, I saw a single cloven hoof hit the snow before me. It was enormous and smelled of rot, its corroded texture seeming to crack and splinter under its weight. 
The long, narrow leg it was attached to looked less like living flesh than some kind of petrified wood. It was as if the entire thing was not a living creature, but some kind of atrocious idol come to life. Its figure reminded me of a walking totem pole. Silently pulling my shoulders towards the opening in the log, I held the matches and the bottle of alcohol at the ready. When my vision eclipsed the edge of the log, I looked up at the massive abomination, strips of flesh hanging from its giant skull, narrow joints cracking as they moved. Its skull clearly resembled that of a mammoth's, but I could see no eyes in its sockets. Though I could tell, somehow, that it was still looking for something. For me. With the length of my arms free, I struck a match against the dry underside of a rock. With the first strike, it failed to light. The sound served only to make the creature aware of my presence. It turned its attention down to me, and with a jolting, disjointed movement, began to reach a long, branch-like arm in my direction. Panicking, I struck another match. This time it lit. I held the match to the cloth and gripped it, just long enough for the fire to take hold. In a spastic motion, I hurled the bottle of burning alcohol at the creature, aiming directly at its chest, a contorted mix of bony flesh and splintered bark. The bottle struck, smashing on impact and spreading flames across the surface of its body. I thrusted myself back into the hollow log, listening to the thing screech and wail as it fought against the flames devouring its body. When the noise began to cease, I emerged from the log and could see that the only remaining evidence of the creature's presence were its footprints and a trail of ash and smoke leading into a hollow. I rested then, but only for a moment, because I was sure Lester wasn't far behind. The forest soon opened up into a wide clearing, and I treaded through it, reflexively gazing at my compass as I walked to make sure I was still heading in the right direction. When I first heard the thud of helicopter blades, I froze, thinking I was being pursued again. But as my eyes shot back and forth across the skyline, I caught the sight of a red and white search and rescue helicopter, lowering itself to the ground up ahead. I fell to my knees, relishing in the fact that my nightmare was finally over. The chopper flew me to the ranger station, where an EMT checked me over. I was emaciated and dehydrated, but thankfully had no serious injuries. On the way back to Dubois, I shared the helicopter with two park rangers. They told me how lucky I'd been, how glad they were that I'd lit that fire to let them know where I was. The smoke trail was just enough to see from the sky, one of them told me. I smiled, wondering if I should tell them about the real source of the fire. But I decided to hold my tongue. The whole episode seemed so horrific and surreal, I didn't even know how to approach an explanation. As I contemplated the experience, one of the rangers nudged me. You know, he said, there's legends in these woods. Old myths about things that can bring the dead back to life for the cost of a human sacrifice. I don't know if I believe it, but something about the place has always been eerie to me. Even the natives stay away from this patch of woods. They won't go near whatever's in there. As he spoke, I thought about my plane crash, about the strange black bird that had caused it. I thought about Lester and Trinity's dead son and the conversation I'd overheard. 
It worked this far, Trinity had said. It got him here. So why can't we just go through with it? I shuddered, imagining the fate I could have suffered. It all seemed unreal, and yet so horrifically undeniable. I knew, even then, that it would never really leave me. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.